Well, good morning. Uh, looking forward to being able to work through another text of Scripture with you. Uh, I invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 31. Uh, as you're turning there, let me just say a few things. Uh, I would encourage you, uh, first of all, uh, to, to stop this video if you haven't already had a chance to view the worship music and sing along with some of the uh, worship team from Colonial. I'd encourage you to do that. It should be on the same page there. You should be able to view that and uh, listen to the scripture reading there that's been picked out for you and, the, um, and uh, all the other uh, pieces of that, the prayer. I encourage you to, to do that before this sermon. And then uh, after the sermon, I would uh, challenge you to go ahead and open up the devotional uh, that I created. It should be on the same page as a download of this sermon. And I would encourage you to go through that as a family. Uh, this worship experience gives us opportunities to, um, to work through the, the scripture together and to consider it even in our smaller groups, whether it's just yourself or maybe a few people in your family. And so we provide that for you to go a little bit farther. Well, as we uh, consider our sermon today, um, we look uh, in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 31. We've been working through the fourth doctrinal section of the book of Hebrews. Uh, this is the lengthiest doctrinal section, and so far we have considered the author's comparison or contrast between the old and new priest. Uh, today, in chapter 8, verses 7 through 13 of Hebrews, we'll see a comparison between the old and new priest. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, the old and new covenant. If you remember, uh, I gave you an acrostic PCS. If you can remember that, you can remember Hebrews 7, 8, 9, priests, covenants, and then old and new sacrifices. But I want to start by this passage that will be quoted in the book of Hebrews. Jeremiah 31, 31. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be they, their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Let's start with a word of prayer. Father, as we consider your word proclaimed again through this media, a video and audio, Lord, we would pray that you would bless it. I pray that you would use it. I pray that your spirit of God that uses it when we're gathered together would also use it in our hearts to point out sin, to encourage and strengthen the body, perhaps to challenge unbelievers of their great need to accept Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that you would do this for the glory of your own name, in Jesus' name. Amen. One special location to me in this world is the city of Melbourne, Australia. I've had the opportunity to go there and to spend parts of seven years of my life in the city of Melbourne uh, as I was working through my PhD dissertation. I'd like to start today by, by telling you a little bit about my first trip to Australia. My first trip uh, was filled with moments of pressure and anxiety. For instance, I was recalling this morning that I, I had to, uh, in my first visit there, completely rework my proposal 
while I was there. I had one month to do it, and it took me three weeks to rework the proposal, and then I had one week near the end to write my first chapter. Remember the high pressure I felt when I had to present that chapter in written form to all of the, the, the Bible faculty of Ridley College and to uh, the, all the other uh, PhD students as well. But my biggest moment of pressure or anxiety had nothing to do with my dissertation. It actually uh, had to do uh, with navigating a car. My advisor, Brian Rostner, asked me to join him in his car on the way to a pastor's conference in the countryside of Australia. So I took the tram to his neighborhood where he lived, and he picked me up at the tram station. After I took a seat in the front seat of his vehicle, he told me that he didn't know much about where we were going, but that he had some paper directions and that he had Google Maps opened up on his iPad, and then he asked me if I would be willing to navigate this trip. So I unfortunately said yes. Now, we were not too far into the trip before I realized that we were in big trouble. I mean, to this point, I don't think that I had ever seen a road map of anywhere in Australia, let alone the city of Melbourne. And to make a long story short, I ended up advising that in a split, you know, split second decision that we would take a road, it was the wrong road, and we ended up going the wrong direction for about an hour. To make things worse, the map on his iPad wasn't working at all. It wouldn't relocate to even tell me where we were. And uh, on top of this, uh, at one moment, I accidentally held my finger too long on the map and dropped a new pin that became our new destination for the trip. Now, all of this was completely unbearable because my advisor was a keynote speaker at the conference we were going to, and we had very little spare time. My problem on this trip was I had no perspective at all of what was going on with the landscape and the geography. Now, have you ever felt lost before when you were trying to navigate a difficult passage of Scripture? As we come to Hebrews chapter 8 today, I think for many of us, the language will seem strange. Perhaps you have no or little knowledge of the topic that we're going to be talking about in this passage. And so, What I would like to do as we look at uh, the new covenant as described in Hebrews 8 is to give you some perspective of this topic before we actually get to the text. I remember about 20 years ago when I was in seminary, a professor assigned uh, the the assignment to write a paper on this chapter uh, and especially on the new covenant. And I remember getting into it, I was so confused. I I spent so much time trying to understand the New Covenant, both the Old and the New Testaments. And and so for me, about after after 100 hours or so, uh, while studying on the subject, I, I remember being so confused and frustrated, I was about ready to give up. And so what I would like to do in our sermon today is, is start a little bit differently than I normally would. I'd like to take about the next 10 minutes and lay a, a theology of the New Covenant. I want to uh, help you think through how this theological topic and subject works. And then, uh, when we do that, I want to get into the passage. And so we're going to set the landscape uh, for the passage before you. And so we start with a theology of the New Covenant. And I think it begins with understanding the importance of this topic. A former friend of mine, Rodney Decker, who has gone home to be with the Lord, described the importance of the New Covenant in this way. 
He said there is no more important issue in the New Testament in regard to the Christian's relationship to God than that of the New Covenant. The justification for such a strong statement is this. If the New Covenant is the basis on which the Christian is rightly related to God in terms of fellowship, then failure to recognize that basis means the Christian will neither understand nor appreciate God's gracious provisions for his or her spiritual life. See, I agree completely with Rodney Decker. This study is essential if you're going to appreciate what God has done for you in Christ and if you're going to understand your position firmly in him. And so once we determine that this is an important study, one of the things you need to know is where is this topic found in Scripture, especially the Old Testament. And so uh, I've presented before you on the PowerPoint slide there the, the two passages where in the Old Testament this is presented the most clearly. It's found in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34, the text I just read to you. And then there's a text in Ezekiel, Ezekiel uh, chapter 36, verses 24 through 38. These are the two most important New Covenant texts in the Old Testament Scripture. In the book of Jeremiah, in this Jeremiah text here, Israel had been exiled by God and Judah was soon going to be. Jeremiah 31 occurs at the end of a little section called the Book of Consolation, Jeremiah 30 and 31, where Jeremiah explains that God is going to deliver Israel and Judah despite their suffering. Now, the book of Ezekiel uh, is uh, very similar, but it takes place about 100 years later. And in these two passages, God promises Israel several unconditional blessings. And so I've given you another slide which captured these things because there's, there's so many of them. I've summarized them for you from Jeremiah and Ezekiel and just a few other places in the Old Testament. I think there, there, there are at least 15 of these promises that he makes in the New Covenant, and, and I'll just go quickly through them. He promises the regeneration of national Israel. He said there's coming a day when all of ethnic Israel will be regenerated. In this New Covenant, God promises complete forgiveness of sins. He promises, third, that the law will be written on their hearts. Fourth, he promises that the, the Holy Spirit will be placed within them. He promises them in, internal cleansing. The sixth promise is the creation of a new nature, and that's followed by the removal of the sin nature for them. This is what God promises in the New Covenant to Israel. He promises a deep knowledge of God Number nine, a close relationship with God. He promises one day that they will get their land restored to them. They're in exile. They're, they're soon to be in exile. And God says, one day your land will be restored. He promises that Israel will enjoy amazing agricultural fertility and the land, again, their land will produce. Number 12, he promises that the city of Jerusalem and the temple will be rebuilt. He promises that Judah and Israel will be reunited that Israel will be protected from her enemies, and finally, that Israel will never again go into captivity. And so, these are the promised blessings. And as you look at that list of 15, I think some of the most important promises that God gives in the New Covenant are the first ones, the first seven. For these have to do with their inner, uh, complete inner transformation. They will be completely forgiven by God, they will get a new heart from him, and God will put his spirit in them. 
Now, I think God always wanted these sorts of blessings for his people, for those who would follow him. As a matter of fact, I think all of the covenants found in Scripture were made by God to encourage closeness and heart obedience before him. And so one of the cool ways of studying the Scriptures would be to study the biblical covenants. I put this slide in front of you uh, here as well to kind of capture some of these covenants where God made promises to the people of Israel. And what's interesting to me is that in each one of these covenants, God desires heart obedience. He desires a close relationship. And even under the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant, that was his desire that they would obey sincerely from the heart so that they would be his people and he would be their God. Now there's one last area of study of the new covenant I think we should pursue before we dig into Hebrews 8, and that is how do Christians today relate to the new covenant? Now perhaps you noticed in the Jeremiah text, and if you did your homework and you looked in the Ezekiel text and other places, you would see that the Old Testament is unanimous that these promises from God and the new covenant are made with the people of Israel. And this creates quite a controversy when we consider ourselves and how we relate to it. I'm pretty sure that in our church there would be a lot of difference of opinion about this question. We probably have at least three or four different ways of answering the question uh, in our church, if you were to survey the people in our church. Um, and I'm, I'm also sure that there's some of you that say, I have no idea how the church is related to the new covenant. So uh, just to help you a bit and to get you uh, into this study a little bit more, the final thing I put before you in a slide there is the different ways the church might be related to the new covenant. Some people believe that the church has no relationship at all to the new covenant. That was for Israel alone and that it in no way affects us. Still others believe that there are two new covenants, that there is one for Israel and one for the church. The weakness with this idea is there's no text of scripture that ever seems to speak of two new covenants. The third position is that the church enjoys new covenant-like blessings. The idea here is that we're not in the new covenant, but some of the blessings that we experience as followers of Jesus Christ today are like new covenant things promised in these Old Testament texts. Another way of looking at the passage is that the church is actually in the new covenant in a preliminary or a partial way, but that the new covenant will be fully experienced by Israel in the future. Okay, so there's a good number of people who hold that. And then finally, there are probably the majority of opinion of Christians today is that the church replaces Israel entirely as God's people, and thus the church experiences the promises that were given to Israel. These are the five main views that summarize the church's relationship to the new covenant. And I tell you these things to whet your appetite, to help you dig into this a little bit, and I'd encourage you to take those views and to go back to Jeremiah and Ezekiel and, and work your way through them and see which one you think is true. There's some relevant New Covenant, New, New Testament text as well that we'll work through in the sermon, but I encourage you to look this up and do this on your own. I'm not going to tell you what I think uh, until a little bit later in the sermon. So having discussed this theology of the New Covenant, I would like to draw your attention now back to Hebrews chapter 8 and work through this passage with you 
uh, and I think that we'll be able to understand it a lot better. In this text, we find the longest quotation of the Old Testament in the New Testament. There's a long citation here. Most of the paragraph is actually a quotation. With such a long quotation, you might think or be tempted to think that the author would have a lot of different comments about it, either before or after, maybe sprinkled in between, but that's not the case at all. However, I want to look at this text, and I want to understand it with you, so let's look at Hebrews 8, and I'll read through the whole passage, verses 7 through 13. It says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 11. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Now in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. In Hebrews chapter 8, we just finished our discussion of the priest. Now we get to a discussion of the covenants. And the author of Hebrews wants to show us that the new covenant is superior to the old Mosaic covenant. And so he does this in two ways. First, he talks about the weakness of the old covenant in verses 7 through 9. There were problems with the old covenant because of man's relationship to God under the Mosaic law. As a matter of fact, a new covenant was predicted by the prophets in the old covenant. So prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, for instance, talked about the weakness of the Mosaic law in their text. And the main problem with the old covenant is found in our text. It's found in two places. First, at the beginning of verse 8, when the author's introducing this long quotation, he says, for he, that's God, finds fault with them. That's a reference to Israel and Judah. He finds fault with them when he says. And then a little bit later on in this text we just read, in the, the end of verse 9, the end of verse 9, he says, For they, Israel and Judah, did not continue or remain, could be translated, remain uh, in my covenant. Here, men and women, the, the old arrangement, the old covenant was defective because God's people were defective. Well, under the Old Covenant, Israel's biggest problem was herself. The Israelites did not continue or remain faithful in the Old Covenant, and so God did not show concern for them. You see, the problem was not with the Old Covenant itself. The Old Covenant was a gracious act of God. I mean, think about it. Anytime God makes promises to sinful men and women, it's grace. It's goodness. 
The problem was not with the Old Covenant. The problem was the sinful flesh and disobedience of Israel and Judah. That's the weakness of the Old Covenant, verses 7 through 9. Okay, Then, in verses 10 through 13, he talks about the New Covenant. And he explains it to us, the nature of it, I think, in three ways. First, in uh, verse 10, the beginning of verse 10, he shows us that the new covenant is with Israel. So I'm going to give you these three summary statements about the new covenant, just to help you understand this topic from the author of Hebrews' perspective. So first, the new covenant is with Israel. Look in your Bibles at the beginning of verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. Now, keep looking down your Bible and look earlier in verse 8. And in verse 8, we, we learned that he made this with uh, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So in verse 10, the promise, I think, is for an Israel that he anticipates as being reunited again in a unified kingdom. Israel and Judah will become Israel in the future, and this promise is for them. Now, when this reunion occurs and when God fulfills these things is a matter of much speculation, and it has been for years. So, for instance, there was a group of Jewish people uh, called the Essenes, who were living outside of Jerusalem in Qumran. And they thought that because they were purists, they thought they were the new covenant community of Jewish people. However, most people in mainstream Judaism did not believe that, that those people were part of the new covenant. As a matter of fact, they thought the new covenant wouldn't be fulfilled until the very end of time when God would come and intervene. But perhaps more important to us is whether the church is somehow enjoying the blessings or benefits of this new covenant that this text says was promised to Israel with the house of Israel. It's my opinion that this text demonstrates that the author of Hebrews believes that uh, believers in Jesus Christ do experience some of the blessings of the new covenant of God instituted by him. God clearly made promises to, in the new covenant to Israel. However, God may do more than he promises. That is not unethical of him at all. He cannot do less, right? If God promises to someone he will do something for them, he will fulfill the promise. But if he includes someone else in the promise in some way or another, that is not unethical. Let me just illustrate this for you with an illustration I thought would be helpful. Let's imagine that I were to take my son Andrew, uh, or promise that I would take my son Andrew to a football game this year. Uh, maybe a Steelers game. Okay, now Andrew, uh, this isn't a promise, it's just an illustration. But let's imagine that I promised that I would take him to a game and so a few weeks after the promise, as we were leaving, uh, uh, as it came the day of the game, as we were leaving, uh, we're walking out the door, and I looked over at my other son, Levi, and I invited him too. What would you think of that? Is it wrong for me to invite Levi to the game, although I had only promised Andrew? 
Levi was not a, a part of the original agreement. Is it wrong for me to do this? I'd say, no, it's not wrong. I have every right as a father to take whoever I want to the game. What would be wrong is if I didn't come through for Andrew. But if I include someone else, that's completely fine. So God may allow the church to participate in the new covenant, and that's not a problem. Although God will fulfill his promises to the Jewish people in the future, it is entirely possible for us to enjoy some of the preliminary blessings of that covenant as people of Jesus today. Now, in fact, I think that there are other texts which help us to understand or that confirm this idea for us in the New Testament. We won't take the time to turn to these other texts, but I would encourage you to write them out and to go back and look at them at, other, at another time. There, there are two texts that I want to address or deal with very briefly that I think also help us to see that in some way or another, the new covenant has already begun. The first one is Luke 22 and verse 20. There in the upper room, Luke records the words of Jesus, and it says this, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. In this account, Jesus proclaims that his death on the cross is the ceremonial sacrifice that begins a new covenant. In other words, the first Lord's Supper looked forward to the cross as the beginning of a new covenant with God or from God. Now later on in the New Testament, there's a, a writer by the name of the Apostle Paul who claims the status of being a, a minister of a new covenant. This text that you could write down is 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 6. In that verse, Paul says this, he says, Who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant? Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So in this passage, Paul says that he has been made competent by God to be a minister of a new covenant. Later in the same passage, Paul will contrast the awesome power and glory of this new covenant which brings righteousness to his people with the fading glories of the Mosaic covenant. So from my perspective as we look into this, if, if we aren't in some way enjoying some of the benefits or blessings of the new covenant, then I think Luke and Peter and Paul and perhaps even Jesus himself would have gotten it wrong. I think, I think we are in some way or another in the new covenant. You see, God may do more than he has promised, but he cannot do less. And so what we're seeing in this text, the first description he gives here in verse 10, the beginning part, is this new covenant is with Israel. I think in some way or another the church is related to that. Although I think it will be fulfilled ultimately with the people of Israel. The second way he describes it is the middle of verse 10 through verse 12. It's that the new covenant includes unconditional promises. One of the most interesting features of the old covenant was that its blessings and promises were conditional. So under the Mosaic covenant, uh, the promises would normally go like this. They would say, if 
you will continue or remain in the covenant. I will, this is God's perspective, I will do this for you. Or if you obey, I will bless you. Also, another text, though, he says, uh, if you disobey, you will be cursed. You'll be judged or you'll be exiled. That's the promises of the old covenant. The promises of the new covenant that are described in these verses, however, are promises that are unconditional. The promises take the form of something like this. God saying, I will write my laws on your heart. I will be your God. All will know me. I will remember your sins no more. So I want to explore these unconditional promises with you for just a moment. I think that there are four of them in the text. First, at the beginning of verse 10, God says that he will put his laws in their mind and write it on their hearts. In the Old Testament scripture, God's people resorted to trying to tie portions of God's word on their hands and their foreheads. They wrote God's law on the door frames of their homes. Some of them even memorized the word, big portions of the word, in an attempt to internalize it. But a few of them, only a few of them, were filled with the Spirit of God's indwelling or empowered by Him. As a matter of fact, there's a prophet in the Old Testament by the name of Moses, and in Numbers chapter 11, Moses says that he longed for the day when God would put his spirit in every believer. But now, in the new covenant, God internalizes his moral laws, and he gives believers minds and hearts to obey him. That's one of the unconditional promises of the New Covenant. Now, in my opinion, what the author may be describing, if he's describing something in our era for the church here, is that he, he'd be discussing here in a metaphorical way uh, a description of the Spirit's indwelling of believers. We don't have the time necessarily to go back over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, but in that chapter we learn a few things. We learn that The Spirit of God understands him. The Spirit of God knows him, even the deep things of God. And then Paul tells us later on in chapter 2 that God has also then given to us a spirit. He's given a spirit. He's placed his spirit within us so that we can understand or have the mind of Jesus Christ. You see, the new covenant involves God moving in to our hard hearts and shattering our hearts, overcoming our sinfulness through the person and work of the Holy Spirit of God. God has given us His Spirit as an internal empowering so that we might obey Him. And so the first unconditional promise is that he will place his laws in, in our minds and he will write them in our hearts. Second, God says at the end of verse 10 that he will be their God and they will be his people. Here we 
have a description of a promise from God in the New Covenant. God has always longed for fellowship with mankind. As a matter of fact, that's the very reason you and I exist. That's the reason humanity was first formed in the garden. God wanted fellowship with mankind. And our purpose for existence is we should desire relationship with him. So God promises unconditionally in this new covenant that this sort of thing is going to occur. In the new covenant, God overcomes the main weakness of the old. He overcomes the sinful nature and disposition of ourselves. And he has found the way in Jesus Christ to give us close relationship with him. I think the church does enjoy this today, but it will be true of Israel again in the future as well through Jesus Christ, the one who initiates the new covenant. But then in verse 11, we learn the third unconditional promise is that they all will know God. This speaks of universal knowledge of God. Look down in your Bible at verse 11 as the author of Hebrews describes it. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greater. Here, the author says that everyone will know about God. One commentator described it this way. He said, knowledge of God will be so universal that the teaching about him will no longer be necessary. You see, it will be universal. All will know him. Now, when the author here says all, it could be a reference to the whole world or more likely, far more likely in my opinion, it's a reference to all Jewish people during the millennial kingdom. See, there will be no need during that era in the future for a religious Bible curriculum where people go to their brothers and neighbors and say, do you know about God? Have you heard about him? Do you know who he is? For at this time, all Jewish people living in that era will know God, for Christ himself will be reigning and ruling in the city of Jerusalem for a thousand years. And so this promise here, I, I believe, is not yet realized in full. Instead, we await its future fulfillment. But how is that sort of closeness and knowledge of God even possible? I think that comes through God's fourth and final promised blessing here mentioned in verse 12. Look at verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Here God promises that new covenant believers will know him because he will forgive all of their sins. That's the grounds, that's what makes this sort of knowledge of him possible, that that's what makes this sort of relationship with, with him possible. He'll forgive it all. I think since the very fall of man in the garden, humanity has, has struggled, has been fleeing away from God, frightfully aware of their true internal condition. But here, God makes relationship, close relationship with him possible again in the new covenant by cleansing our sins. All of our sin, all of our selfish indulgences, all of our gossip, all of our lying, all of our lust, all of our jealousy, all of our anger is forgiven in the new covenant by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
Now, men and women, can I stop for a moment and just say, these are very special promises, these unconditional blessings from God. When God would give us new hearts and minds that want to obey Him, when He will be our God, and when He will make knowledge of Him universal, and when He decides to forgive us of our sins because of the work of Jesus Christ. Have you ever had someone make extravagant promises to you before? Kids, uh, maybe you can remember someone promising to give you a good gift, maybe a good Christmas gift. And so they make the promise, they wrap the present, and it's under the tree, and And so you can barely stand it, right? You can't wait until the day that you finally get to open it. And then that day comes, and you get get that present, you begin to open it up, but then you realize that it's clothes, right? It's like socks or something. And you think, wow, what a disappointment. What a disappointment. It's clothes. I mean, who wants clothes? I mean, how crushing, right? But maybe there was another time when someone promised you something really good for Christmas. A really good gift. Now, I remember the best Christmas gift that was ever given in my life. I was five years of age. And I remember walking into the room, and that's when I saw my present. It was a brand new Yamaha mini bike, 50cc Yamaha motorbike. I mean, it wasn't a bicycle. It had a motor, it had an engine, and you pull the throttle, and it would, you could go fast on this thing. And it was black and yellow. It was new. It had this little number one on the front of it. I remember thinking about that present. This is so awesome. I can't believe I got this. I can't believe I get to keep it. Compare your responses to those two presents. I I learned as a very young boy that some promises are better than others. And so men and women and boys and girls, when God makes a promise to us and it is somehow connected with Jesus Christ, if it comes through him or it comes from him, let me tell you, it's going to be awesome. You can count on it. It's going to be better than anything else you've ever experienced. So he goes through these unconditional promises and blessings that are ours because of Jesus Christ, the one who starts a new covenant for us. And so as we've looked at the text of Scripture and these, uh, the nature of the new covenant, we said the author describes it in three ways. He says, first, it's for Israel. Second, it contains unconditional, awesome promises. And then finally, in verse 13, it replaces the old covenant. Look there in your Bible. It says, in speaking of a new covenant, he has made the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Here in verse 13, the author says that since the old covenant is ancient or old, it will soon vanish away. In a sense, he's saying here that the first covenant is not only old and weak, but that it is destined for destruction. This is the perspective of the author of Hebrews. This is his final comment on what Jeremiah said before him. He's, he uses the words vanishing away. It's, it's ready to disappear or be destroyed, it could be translated. The old covenant, he says, is obsolete, and it is becoming obsolete in every way. That's his point. Now, 
When he thought this would finally happen is a little bit unclear in the text. Some people think that most of the, the Mosaic Covenant has been done away with, but that there are little parts of it that continue to obligate believers the moral part of the Mosaic Law. Others, however, myself included, claim that the author here explains that the New Covenant has replaced the Mosaic Covenant. And that he's predicting here the complete cessation of the entire system, including the sacrifices and the priesthood that would come in just a few years after this in AD 70. I think he's writing to Jewish believers in the late 60s AD. And the author realizes here the imminence of the destruction of the temple. Soon there would no longer be an altar. Soon there would be no holy of holies or any priest or sacrifices for them anymore. So he says, don't go back under the old covenant. It's just about ready to disappear and fade into oblivion. Instead, remain in Jesus' covenant. It's better. His priesthood is better. And in him, all of God's extravagant, unconditional promises are fulfilled. You can count on it. In Jesus, men and women, we do receive unbelievable things. So imagine yourself having a conversation with God and you go to him and you're just confirming the conditions of this new covenant and the promises. And so you say to God, so what you're saying here in this new covenant is that you will be my God again? Is that what you're saying? Or you say, uh, what this is saying is I'm going to be your son or daughter again? And you're saying, God, that you have forgiven every one of my sins and iniquities? That you've chosen to forget all about these things? And God replies back to you, yes, I've covered them completely through the sacrifice of my son, Jesus Christ, for you. Men and women, I would pray that these promises would not just be words on a page, scripts on a, script on a page, text on a page, but that for you they'd be reality. That you'd actually take a moment this Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon and you, can, you would consider the blessed reality that we have in Jesus Christ. Every one of our sins covered. God promising unconditionally to be our God and for us to be his people. Let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Father, I would pray for anyone in our congregation or anyone listening to this sermon who would be presently counting or trusting in something else in the midst of this crisis that we are experiencing. Lord, if they find, are finding security or fulfillment in something else, I pray that they would see that it's just temporal. It too is soon ready to disappear or vanish away. And I, I, I pray, Lord, for anyone who's never turned to Christ as their Savior, anyone who uh, can't say that these promises are true for them. And I pray that they would see that Jesus is better. He's better, that they would turn to him as the Lord of their life and trust him entirely. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.